The Reluctant Conformist. A book by Richard Cowley. Narrated by the author. Introduction. This novel confronts the ordeals encountered by Magnus Macaulay, who shipped out from the Isle of Man in search of adventure. Before his 19th birthday, the youth of mixed Celtic and Viking blood had encountered electrifying escapades whilst sailing the seven seas. More worldwide exploits enlivened Magnus's journeys with some chilling encounters until he was cast ashore in Australia, where he wholeheartedly embraced the new world's have a go, ya mug, lifestyle. A brief encounter with the secretive and unregulated world of fine arts and the unexpected arrival in the beyond, where everything is new, transcendental, and inexplicable, propelled Magnus into an eternal state of expecting the unexpected. Part 1. A Random Walk into the Unknown Chapter 1. Episode 1. The Soldier A quote from Dan Snow, historian and TV presenter, born in 1978 and still going strong. The quote is from the Telegraph magazine, 15th of April, 2017. The more I learn about history, the more I feel astonishingly lucky that I'm alive today, when you consider the hell our ancestors lived through. And so our story begins. Checkmate, Grandad, whispered Finn, with the merest hint of amused self-satisfaction playing about his face. Magnus Henry, confused by the know-how and confidence of one so young, gave his grandson a lingering look before shaking his little hand and saying, Super game, Finn. You've now beaten me eight times. But be careful. One of these days, I'll win. There's something pleasing yet unsettling about an elderly wise owl being outmaneuvered on the chessboard by a six-year-old. Behind Magnus's obvious pride in his grandson's ability to play with such self-assurance and skill, there lurked a shadow of unease and anxiety and self-doubt that may leave many retirees uncertain of their place in the world. Finn's future, on the other hand, was perfectly clear. He wished to become a champion chess player, a champion soccer player, and a champion tennis player, who kept servants and ran a window-cleaning business on the side. Commendable goals for a youngster, that revealed a degree of foresight and conviction not evident in Magnus until he was well into his sixties, a time of life when most such opportunities had long since passed him by. Magnus was holidaying with his daughter Fenella and her family in Brisbane, Australia, which was also his hometown. At the time, however, his house was rented, whilst he spent a year or two of retirement revisiting his origins on the Isle of Man. How he came to call Australia home, which is on the far side of the world from where he was brought up, is a tortuous tale of serendipity and happenstance. The Isle of Man is a small self-governing island in the middle of the Irish Sea. It's part of the British Isles, but not part of the United Kingdom. Recent archaeological diggings on the island unearthed evidence of a farming settlement dating back over 8,000 years much earlier than previously thought for agriculture in Europe. For a millennium or more, it was a remote island with insular and superstitious inhabitants 
of mixed Celtic and Nordic blood. Although there is no evidence of Roman settlement, it's difficult to believe that during their 400-year occupation of Britannia, those avaricious land-grabbers didn't send in the assessors to gauge the island's commercial and military possibilities. The Romans, if they arrived at all, may not have been impressed by what they saw. However, the 9th century Nordic Vikings adopted an altogether less apathetic attitude. For these Norse sea wolves, the island was Valhalla in the Irish Sea, so much so that the island remained a vital part of the Nordic Empire well into the 13th century. The fortunes of the island's native inhabitants, the Max, have varied throughout history. Presently, the local population is thriving thanks to offshore finance, insurance, online gambling, shipping and aviation registries, etc. In the 19th century, however, after Karl Marx penned his treatise Das Kapital, which was partially informed by the miseries of the Industrial Revolution factory workers in Manchester, a friend of Marx commented, The Manx rustics are worse off than the white industrial slaves you've observed, Karl. <laughs> Fortunately for them, they are oblivious of the fact. A century later, during the 1950s, the island still offered limited opportunity for year-round employment. Being a summer tourist island meant that residents could hold down two jobs during the holiday season. However, with limited winter employment, many people were obliged to leave the island to find work. For instance, Norfolk provided winter employment on the sugar beet, processing root vegetables to extract the white death, sugar. As a child, Magnus often helped out on farms, and would have been happy following in his forebears' footsteps as a farmer in the parish of Kirk Lonnon. But without a family farm, and no means of getting one, his fancy faded into a forgotten dream. Like most children at the time, he had several summer holiday jobs, other than revelling in the zesty, open air and sunshine of farm life. The two extremes were laundry ironing, a prison with heat and steam, and more successfully, hiring out deck chairs to happy holiday makers on Douglas Promenade, smiles with blue sea and sky. Whilst working at the seaside, a happy holiday maker gave Magnus a thin cowboy paperback he'd just finished reading on the beach. This became the first book Magnus read from cover to cover, and initiated the newfound lifelong pleasure of reading. He was then fifteen years of age, and had already left school. Magnus's mother, Margaret Lillian, steered her youngest son away from plumbing and TV maintenance apprenticeships, which would have kept him at home, towards the aspiration of further education. This had the far-reaching consequence of him having to leave the island where tertiary education was unavailable. Apart from observing what those around him did on the island to earn a living, Magnus remained ignorant of what employment possibilities existed, what job requirements were, or what most professions entailed. Like everybody else, he didn't know what he didn't know, and didn't even know that. In this blithe spirit of ignorance, he slavishly followed the familiar path towards an assured future in paid education and adventure with the British Armed Forces, a calling for which he believed he was aptly qualified. Thanks to a mop of bright red hair, a genetic signature that came with his Celtic Viking blood, 
he was nearly always charged for action, a trait he considered an obvious prerequisite for a budding soldier. As a 14-year-old newly promoted single-stripe lance bombardier in the school's army cadet force, Magnus decided to become an officer cadet in the British Army. Army scholarships were available for technical training at Welbeck College, followed by military schooling at the Royal Military Academy, Sandhurst. He was comfortable with these prospects, knowing that a mere private from the school cadet contingent of the previous year had been accepted as promising officer material despite his inability to march. Magnus's naive reasoning was that if somebody who was unable to master disciplined walking was acceptable to the British Army, anybody could get in. A chance meeting with this older scholarship cadet, who at the time was on leave from Welbeck College, revealed that tuition was not restricted to technical issues alone. Included in the mix were the subtle skills of leadership which included officer-speak elocution lessons. This socially segregating system imbued the spoken word with the obligatory sense of authority to differentiate between officers and the ranks. It was widely understood that training in the armed forces would provide a recruit with suitable skills for subsequent employment as a civilian. For instance, consider the stellar career of Adolf Hitler. Throughout the 1920s, the lowly-born Hitler enjoyed a meteoric rise from the menial rank of corporal during the First World War to the exalted post of Chancellor of Germany in little over a decade, even though constrained by Germany's rigid social structure. It should never be forgotten, however, that Hitler came to power with a significant advantage over his rivals. He believed he enjoyed a foreknowledge of events thanks to the psychic skills of the Swiss-born astrologer Karl Ernst Kraft. Many Manx families of Magnus's generation had connections with the armed forces, having relatives or friends bivouacked around the globe. During the 1950s, Britons were raised on an unremitting diet of war films, cinema newsreels of independent skirmishes throughout the crumbling British Empire, and territorial army recruitment drives. And if that wasn't enough, to stiffen the sinews and summon up the blood of the recalcitrant few who hadn't been paying attention, there was also the weekly black-and-white TV fix of The World at War or War at Sea. Military actions filled the daily newspapers, and even the Sabbath wasn't exempt from the relentless militaristic bombardment. The BBC dedicated Armed Forces Musical Request Programme, two-way family favourites, wafted through the house whilst the Sunday joint was being prepared. And to crown it all, the sword of Damocles of conscription into national service hung over the heads of all but the flat-footed, the well-connected, or those otherwise excused. To an aspiring Manx youngster, a life of exploration as an officer cadet in the British Army was there for the taking. Magnus was deemed fit for service after enduring a week-long medical examination conducted in a World War II wooden military hospital near the English-Welsh border town of Chester, a garrison town since Roman times. Accommodated in the officer's wing of the sprawling single-story maze, the 15-year-old hopeful peed and funneled sample bottles, was tapped by hammers, and swallowed countless pills. 
The attendant nurses weren't dressed in soft white medical attire of Civvy Street, but tweedy uniforms with heavy cloaks and enormous starched sphinx-like wimples, the whole regalia trimmed with insignia, campaign ribbons, and badges of rank. His first encounter with an expressly army type occurred on arrival in the small, seemingly unoccupied officer's ward in which he'd been assigned the first bed on the left, next to the entrance. There were five or so beds set on each side of the starkly functional ward. Halfway down the far side of the ward, one bed was screened by pull-round curtains. "'Who are you?' an authoritative voice barked, whilst Magnus was unpacking his clothes into a small bedside locker. "'And what the blazes are you doing here?' "'Macaulay, sir, and I'm an applicant for Welbeck College,' Magnus replied to the bedraggled head that protruded horizontally from between the curtains of the screened-off bed opposite, and which sported an impressive Mose Diang-style black eye patch. Good for you, the bedraggled warrior boomed. Been a Rupert for over thirty years. Made Brigadier. Been worldwide. Rode every decent stretch of water in the UK. Damned fine life, the army. Well looked after. Been in hospital five years in the past eight. Lost this eye one night on manoeuvres. One of the chaps let the hawthorn branch go swish. Knock me blessed eye out. Good luck with your application. With that, as a giant Galapagos tortoise might withdraw its head into the sanctuary of its shell, the brigadier's hoary head slowly disappeared into the isolated comfort of its curtained enclosure. And that's the last Magnus saw of that professional soldier, one who might have been happier emptying a Bren gun from the hip than negotiating peace terms with a determined enemy. All meals were held in the officer's mess, which was an eye-opener to a country boy, even a convivial type with passable table manners. Most accents were terribly clipped and far-back officers speak, that became doubly so when women diners were present. Magnus was the only Welbeck hopeful in the exclusive company of mostly elderly military types, but he was treated with courtesy and respect by the diners and the stewards. Perhaps not unexpectedly, Magnus failed the Welbeck entrance examination, held some weeks later again near Chester, and was deemed unsuitable officer cadet material. Battling dyslexia, he was at best a stumbling reader, who shone as a world-class creative speller, a skill that could fox those with more conventional literary and grammatical attitudes, such as the conformist military establishment. In truth, his chess-playing grandson, Finlow, was a far better reader at six than Magnus had been at fifteen, his age when sitting the examinations. His army evaluation report may have read, not the ideal candidate for writing communiques or reading out orders in dire situations, best rejected to minimize casualties on both sides. <laughs>